0: Welcome to the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast, where we're joined by your hosts, Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. In each episode, we'll be sharing valuable insights and tips to help you turn your NDIS business into a profitable venture. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your business to the next level, you've come to the right place. Let's stop surviving and start thriving. G'day, everybody, and welcome to the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast. My name is Paul. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Tanya, and today we are chatting with Ben and Robin from Recovery Oriented Services. Thank you so much for joining us today, guys. Hi, it's good to be here. (laughs) It's great to have you here, and, and g'day, Tanya. How are you doing today?
1: Yeah, I'm good, Paul. I'm really excited to talk all things recovery coaches and understand a little bit more about, uh, about what that means and to enlighten our listeners yeah, about what's coming next to recovery coaches also with the NDRS review coming out.
0: Yeah, we're going to dive in. We've got a bundle of questions for you guys. Um, and, you know, with all the changes happening, we'd love to get your input on that as well. But I wonder if you could just give us a bit of a rundown on, you know, who you guys are, how you got started, and, and what you do.
2: Sure thing. Um, I mean, how we got started. I mean, I, I worked through mental health and uh, counselling and support services um, most of my life. Um, but it was once the NDS started supporting people with psychosocial disabilities that it realised there was an opportunity there to come in and really help people. Um, so after working for a few years um, under some other organisations and um, building up a bit of strength and understanding about the industry um, in re- relation to coordination, um, I then jumped over and decided to go out on our own. Um, so with my lovely partner, Robin. Um, and we're sort of a a, a tag team with our clients and keeping everything um, done and dusted between us and um, the other employees that work with us. Um, Why we started this, I would say, is because I felt that there was a need for a more person-centred approach within coaching um, and that there's a bit of a misunderstanding or mysticism around what recovery coaching is or what coordination is.
0: Yeah, cool. So I wondering, could you give us a bit of an idea about what exactly a recovery coach does for those of our listeners who may not have a, a really clear understanding?
2: So yeah, a recovery coach, in the blurb text that you would read on the webpage on the NDS site, we, we are there to support you with all your coordination. Um, So, linking with services, finding you the right providers, liaisoning with them, and making sure that all your service agreements are in place, um, making sure that the clients understand how to use their provider portals um, and the NDIS portal, um, and and upskilling people so that they can uh, do all this this themselves. Um, The actual concept behind coordination and recovery coaching really is for us to kind of do ourselves out of the job. We're building someone's capacity. Um, and as a recovery coach, the reason that it differs so greatly is that um, we're focused on the mental health side of things and people that are having difficulties that are outside the normal functioning and requiring a more um, tailored, person-centered approach to ensure that they can actually meet their goals and build capacity.
3: Yes, I, I, I sort of tell people when I'm describing it to them that we are somewhat um, sort of look at us as like an accountability coach or like a life coach. So it's oh, it's cool. a step further than coordination in a sense of, you know, coordination is linking you to the providers, um, whereas a recovery coach is there to work alongside providers. So, for example, if an OT has set up um, certain plans or strategies for the participant to take home and work on, um, they they sometimes struggle with going home and working on those things themselves and they sort of need someone to hold them accountable and help guide them through that. So that's where a recovery coach comes in. So we basically work very closely with other providers and therapists to then implement what they've asked the participant to work on. Um, so it's yeah, it's, it's sort of like a life coach or and an accountability coach in that sense. Um, or sometimes even if they're not seeing other therapists, they sort of have things within themselves that they want to work on to help achieve their ultimate goals. Um, so like for example, we have clients who are absolutely petrified to take any sort of mode of transport. Um, and so then that's when we would work with them and on a daily or on a fortnightly basis, we would sort of say, okay, well, tomorrow we're going to go and we're going to go to up to go get your shopping and we have to catch this number bus. And but we do it with them and we do it slowly and obviously at their pace. And um, so all that kind of stuff is what we do.
2: We're working in conjunction with the psychologist who's um, talking about implementing exposure therapy. And the idea is that we would go along with them at first and then um, get off two stops before they get to their destination, then one stop before they get to their destination, then the next time we're not with them at all. Um, And the other thing would also be to be teaching these skills to support workers as well and building that relationship up so the support workers can also be involved and be doing that process as well. Yeah, cool. Um, Yeah.
1: That's really interesting that I hadn't heard that kind of description before, and I guess there is quite a lot of confusion around where does support coordination start and finish, Um, and I wasn't really clear on how it actually worked. Um, And also, like then you've got specialist support coordination, and I understand the difference between, you know, level one and two and level three if you're talking categories, Um, but I guess it's, it's really outside of that as well. It's a really about the implementation or execution as opposed to just being somebody there, um, setting those goals or, you know, linking the supports, as you said. So exactly. it's really, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting to hear it.
2: Often I've seen it sort of discussed as, you know, it's between level two and level three, kind of slotted in there because most clients that need recovery coaching will have complex needs. But don't meet the requirements for level three support coordination.
1: Yeah, right. So, and and look, my examples might have been wrong my whole life, but how I explain the difference between level one and two and level three is, um, and I guess how we're taught as auditors is that level three, which is specialist support coordination, if people don't know what we're talking Mm. about, now we're getting really jargon. Um, uh, So, level one and two is assist assist transition life stages, which is known as coordination of supports and then level three being specialized support coordination because they couldn't have used different words that weren't so similar um there's only so many words um and so um the difference for me in that is that level three is usually temporary um and usually transitional so i give the example and i'm happy for you to tell me that my example is terrible that if someone is leaving home to transition to supported independent living or if they're leaving a hospital or if they're leaving corrections or the justice system and they're transitioning to a new environment, the reason for level three, how I make sense of it, um, is that level three is really around um, dealing with all of those larger risks that happen in transition times because uh, behavior is, you know, everyone, no one likes transition and change. And so that yeah. there's a lot of triggers that can occur that impact on mental health. So people need more support in that time. So if someone leaving prison after 10 years and they're moving to a, a sill home or a boarding house or whatever they're called now, um, There's obviously lots of transition that needs to occur, so you need to wrap extra supports around them in that time so Mm. that that transition is successful where where someone on level one and two is really around how do I not maximise your supports but you've got this funding and these plans. How do we implement that? How do we get you up? Am I am I right in my description of level one and level, level
2: two and three? Yeah, at level three, it is most likely being implemented for transitional. But you'll actually find the recovery coaching, in a sense, the idea behind it is that it is also transitional. Yeah, right. The concept is that that, that you have something that you can recover come recover from and build capacity from. That you might need um, sixty hours of support a year this year. But the idea is that we might only need forty next year because we've stepped you closer towards being able to achieve and and do everything on your own. Um, it's yeah, this, this, it's done the same way really, um, except usually with level three support, they've done it uh, strictly as a two year plan, and then you review and then it's taken away. Where with recovery coaching, it's really based on what kind of progress or improvement there's actually been within the plan.
3: Mm. Yeah, and speaking to what you said, Tanya, I suppose where a recovery coach would come in in that sense as well is, you know, we would, for level three, you would have all of, obviously, the providers, like you said, making sure that that transition is as smooth as possible, whereas where a recovery coach could come in is making sure that perhaps on the day that they're transitioning or um, on a fortnightly basis, just checking in with them, going physically to the house, like, hey, what do you still need doing? Like, I can see that garden over there might need help or... Do you need help unpacking some of your boxes? We can get someone out to help you organise. So that's where a recovery coach would come in and sit with them and sort of say that. Um, We also use like a star chart that we use for recovery coaching. So, for example, if they're now living in their new um, independent living or whatever, we could sort of say to them, right, what are some of the personal goals that you want to work on now that you're out and you're living independently? What are some of the things that you fear or struggle with? And we can sort of work with that.
1: Mm. Wow, it's really yeah, that's interesting. Um, can, you, can you tell me a little bit more about, um, so you said that there's something to recover from. What, what could that be? What types of things are we talking about? Are we talking about trauma in general or is it anxiety? could we recovering? So
2: most mental health disorders are usually considered, some are considered lifelong and that's what you are to get onto the MDS, having a lifelong disability. Um, But the NDIS definitely views many of these as recoverable and uh, that your level of support may change over time. So these could be something uh, like complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, At the moment, that might be impeding and impacting on your life significantly to the point where you can't leave the house, you can't attend appointments, um, and, and recovery or doing anything with your plan is almost impossible. Um, so there's a plan and India has planned all this money to help you just sitting there and nothing's happening with it and um, I guess the idea is that a recovery coach can come in and and help to support them with their psychologist or or just one-on-one to to, to make those changes and, and move forward.
3: Yeah, I think also um, when we say recovery as well, you know, we get lots of clients who have adapted other cruxes to help them through their psychosocial disabilities. So for example, some people might have a disability where they've now are dependent on um, alcohol to numb themselves or whatever so we do have clients that we help recover from in that sense of like mm. no longer drinking or no longer taking
2: yeah and that, um, and that drugs in itself and requires a significant linking with external services and advocacy to ensure that they're going to meet that and that requires us to be working with them as well to make sure that they're implementing those strategies and actually recovering um, and I guess what you're saying is you know, what, what are we recovering from? I guess we're just recovering from the ability, um, your inability, that uh, you've got greater potential and that once you've worked on things, you can achieve your goals and, and be, have greater capacity and choice over your life. Wow, that's
1: interesting. That's great. Um, sorry, Paul. It kind of sounds to me almost like uh, a contradiction in the NGIS that, yes, you have to be, have a permanent disability to be eligible for yes, but they're still acknowledging that there is, I guess, maybe these are symptoms or co-mobility uh, um, of disability, that there are spectrums, that there are things that can improve, but you still then need an underlying permanent disability. So if you yeah. had a mental health condition potentially that wasn't deemed to be lifelong, you wouldn't be eligible for this service currently. No. no. Which
3: which, I are- think. Sorry. I think that, you know, I think psychosocial in itself as well is still not as recognised as it should be. Like there's still a lot of people who are quite confused or still don't see psychosocial as having a disability disability. Um, and I think that in itself needs to have way more awareness. Like there's even some GPs that have, you know, mentioned to our clients that, but you're not in a wheelchair and you don't have a physical disability. Like you're not going to get a plan, but they even those GPs blow my mind because it's like you don't have to have a physical disability and you don't to have, have to be in a wheelchair to be able to access the NDIS. Like some people, their disabilities are in their minds. Like that in itself, I think that whole thing in itself needs more awareness around psychosocial.
2: Yeah. And being And um... Next week is Mental Health Awareness Week. And uh, just, yeah, get, everyone should be getting things out there and uh, making sure that people are aware that um, the invisible disability.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Can, yes, can you, does. just on that point, can you give me a definition uh, or you know a, a description maybe of what is psychosocial disability for people who might be listening that don't understand you know, because they they might be, I, I, as an early childhood teacher, you know, we're not taught a lot about psychosocial disabilities, where if, if you say your disability is in your mind, I'm thinking cognitive delay or global delay, developmental delay. I'm not thinking psychosocial disability. So what does that mean? And what can that look like?
2: Okay. So what does it mean? Essentially, it would mean that you would have a diagnosis that of a mental health condition that significantly impacts on your daily living and your daily tasks. So it would be impeding on your ability to have work, impeding on your ability to maintain your home, um, sleep, uh, clean, diet. It, it's just impacting on your life and on such a negative level that you're unable to maintain a normal life. Um, and therefore contributing to the And, and contributing to the society. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the whole idea behind it all is that we can all work together to get someone to a level where we're all working and we're all happy.
1: Yeah,
3: wonderful. So, so some examples of like psychosocial disability can be like you know um, bipolar disorder, personality disorders. Yeah. Um, you know, like severe anxiety. Yeah, severe
2: anxiety, but that usually has to be accompanied yeah. by something else. It doesn't often uh, get through. So, yeah, post-traumatic stress, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, um, things like that. Um, but really, really, I often find as well that many people are misdiagnosed. Um, so you go to a GP and a GP says, oh, you've got anxiety. Um, if you've got something going on, you really need to go see a specialist. You need to see a psychiatrist. You need to go through the steps and actually identify what's going on for you and where that anxiety stems from. Because quite often your anxiety isn't just anxiety. Based on something, a critical event that happened to you in your life and it's been with you this whole time. And if you can resolve that, then you could have greater capacity to work out in the world and, and live a happier, positive life.
1: Yep. Yeah, wonderful. I think that kind of dovetails nicely into my next question about the NJS review, is that it it seems that there's lots of people who fall outside of this currently. And the NJS review has suggested lots of things. One of those things being a I might get the wording wrong, something like a unified ecosystem where there's foundation, foundation supports outside of the NDIS. I think that's a positive of the the review. Do, do you think from your perspective that the review is positive for uh, psychosocial recovery coaching or do you see that there's negatives there? Is it a, a bit of both? What's your initial uh, take on it?
2: Yeah, I, I think with all change there's a bit of both. Yeah. Um, especially when it comes to, to government policies. Um, I think that the, the changes moving forward, there, there is good, good, um, and that would be that, um, for instance, there's been massive confusion about psychosocial and whether or not it's supposed to be a standalone or a separate ser- a separate service or a combined service. So I've had instances where um, I'm working with a support coordinator um, and I'm a psychosocial recovery coach. and In my mind, that wasn't how it was supposed to be originally set out. The changes coming into play have made sure that it is set in stone, that it's just one title, recovery coach and support coordination. Um, So there's none of that confusion anymore.
3: Yeah, I think that was a big thing. I think people thought the way that the plan was initially set out was that you would have support coordination and then they would have recovery, like psychosocial recovery coaching, and people always thought that they had to hire. Or look for a support coordinator and a recovery coach, and that's where it was a bit blurry. Whereas it's actually just still the one person doing both roles. Mm. Um, you don't need to have the two entities.
2: And that in itself would, was wasting a lot of um, funding. Funding with double ha- double handling of information mm. and details. It was just yeah. unnecessary. So that that's a good thing that the the, the the funding will go where it needs to go and people will get the help they need. Um, the reforms also. Aren't, hoping that they're, they're making changes in relation to what's considered a recovery coach and the actual um, qualifications required. Um, at the moment, it's just you have experience in, in, in uh, support coordination. There's actually no minimum requirements. Um, but coming in, like for Ross, I, I said that anyone that works with Ross, the minimum for psychosocial work is set for um, in mental yeah. health or more. Um, with lived experience and, and, and uh, yeah, it, it's just it's important to understand the systems that are at play, not just the NDIS, but also the medical system in itself and the play between the two. So the adult mental health units and how they work um, and what their policies and procedures are with, with uh, participants and admissions and what's covered by the medical system and the mental health system and what's covered by the NDIS. Those are two very separate things, and I think that they're trying very hard in the reform to outline that what who covers what.
3: Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned, like no specific sort of requirements there, but you, you've obviously you guys have got a, a level of you know this is our our bar that we've set. We want you to have these this level here. Um, how do you find um, the the industry like recovery uh, recovering coaching as a whole? Do you feel that most people are operating at a a certain level or do you think it's a bit loose at the moment in regards to what's needed?
3: I'd say a bit loose. It's a bit loose. Yeah. But then even speaking on support coordination, and, I I mean, I don't mean to, to be mean or disrespectful, but I even sometimes feel like even support coordinators in themselves, it's just like a lot of people They've come straight off doing support work into support coordination and it is somewhat different and it's like you get so many people who are just out there and doing the job that don't really know the job or what they're doing or provide the right services. So it's the mm. same as, you know, when we started Ross, we're very both very mental health focused and we sort of said, right, as far as we're concerned, there may not be a requirement for um to become a recovery coach, but we wanted to set that bar for our employees that we wanted to say, well, we mm-hmm. we would like this as a minimum because you are working with high-risk participants mm-hmm. at time, and you're going into risky situations and sometimes there's suicidal idolations oh, yeah. and everything that you need to really work with. So having that background in mental health is really going to help you better help the participant, whereas if you're just coming straight from support work or just generalised mm-hmm. coordination, it, it might be a bit too daunting and overwhelming for you not having that background and then therefore the participant is not getting supported safely like they should be. I
2: That's think fine. I see a lot of peer mentoring as recovery coaches and yeah, there's a line okay. item for that and there's, there's a whole set of things around that and if you're going to be a peer mentor, you should be a peer mentor. But if you're a recovery coach, there's a lot more to it than, than providing a positive um, uh, example. And taking people out
0: yeah so um, that is yeah, a separate,
2: separate
0: uh, area isn't it it's like there's a specific area for funding for psychosocial recovery um is that something that yeah. people um they like they would obviously go through an assessment process for that but how difficult mm-hmm. is it for someone like if you if you come across someone who goes we really need to do that is that a really difficult process for them or is it usually fairly straightforward yeah.
2: It, it can be. Um, so I've, I've worked with quite a few clients that have come on board with me with coordination and that's been, they've already had assessments done that have outlined other mental health concerns going on. They've had very minimal coordination, very little progress on their plan. Um, and then I've stepped in and helped them to sort of collate all that information from the therapist into a report and then, um, request it to be recognized as a secondary disability. Um, mm-hmm. And then that will allow access to um, more access to psychology um, and possibly improve relationships, which is uh, behaviour support um, and psychosocial recovery coaching.
3: It is a lengthy process and there's a fair bit involved, but it can be achieved. Um, And yeah, so it's basically um, we encourage most of our participants anyway to get regular functional capacity assessments done anyway. Um, but I suppose that's also where I can speak on with having that qualification of cert 4 in mental health comes into play as well because a lot of the times as well you may recognise that they may have a psychosocial disability or, or pick on things that you think they could need more supports in and then you can kind of flag it with them and mm-hmm. then start the process of, you know, getting them another um, evaluation done or another assessment done to help them get the funding that they need. Yeah,
2: because the world of disabilities, it's not just black and white clad on a piece of paper. Ultimately, we're talking about people here, and yeah. people are complicated. Um, and it's not usually just what's written down on that piece of paper. There's all sorts of other things going on in this person's life, and you have to find out how much of an impact they are having, and then try and uh, decide whether or not it needs it warrants support, I guess. And if it does, then yeah, we can we can apply to have it recognised as a secondary disability. That's really
1: interesting. Um... Uh, You speak so proudly and with so much passion about what you do. I'm I'm wondering if you can share some of your client success stories with us and I suppose tell us a little bit more about what it is you love about the work that you do.
2: Oh, sure. Gosh, success stories. Um, I've worked with a client for a few years and um, he would have remained at home, very um, isolated, um, no social circle, um, no friends, um, limited social and support workers coming in. Um, the plan was mostly unspent and unused. He was at risk of losing his children. At risk of losing children, at risk of um, losing his home due to financial stresses and constraints. And then um, yeah, no, I've come in, I've, I've linked in with OTs and therapists I know and trust. Um, they've helped develop sleep hygiene plans, which has got him sleeping and more regular, albeit not normal. Sleeping patterns, um, but but um, he he's, he's so much better. And then from that we moved on to the next next phase of things, where was he? He felt like he didn't have anything in his life. He wanted to, to achieve work and work placement. So um, I helped him to build a small uh, micro enterprise. So linked him with a few services and got involved himself. And now he does uh, makes Lego tables on the side. To, to, yeah, as, as a hobby for the children, basically. Yeah. Um, me being one of those children. No. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so right. that, that's one that's good success cool. story. Um, yeah, I've, I've got so many. This, yeah, another one would be a client that was so heavily impacted with um, the, their mental health. It was mostly um, complex, post-traumatic stress, and they've been stuck living at home for on and off, out of home and then kicked out and then back home again for, I think it was 15 years. Um, and since I've come on board, I've got them into their own um, accommodation, um, secure rental agreement, everything's been kept going, um, all the services are in place, they're regularly seeing all the therapists, um, and yeah, now they've got friends, social circles, and they're, they're committed to, to in, improving and changing their life. And and it's really good when I start to go, Hey, how do you, how do you feel about seeing me fortnightly? How do you feel about seeing me monthly? Mm-hmm. You know, cause they don't need it anymore. They're, yeah. they're there. They've got it. They're, 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 they've got their life back where they want it to be and they're happy.
3: Yeah. And it, yeah. it's a
2: fantastic feeling.
3: And it also, you know, we've, got, we've had clients that we've helped individually, but in a sense have also helped families. So, you know, we had a client come on board who, his mum was quite at the stage of, you know, she obviously still loved him and wanted to support him, but she was just kept hitting this roadblock with him and she was just getting to the point where she physically, you know, herself didn't really want to be around him in the way that he mm. was sort of acting. And obviously it's not it's not personal. He couldn't help it. But, you know, we've sort of got him out and he's living independently now away from his mum and their relationship has flourished now. Like they're getting along so much better. Um, So, yeah, it's not even helping just, Participant, it's helping their families as well yeah um a running joke that ben and i always have with our clients is that you know as a recovery coach it's not it's not a long-term thing and and you know we're essentially working ourselves out of the job which is good because if if we you no longer need us but we're not looking that at that as like oh my gosh we have no more work we're looking at as a huge achievement because if you no longer need us it means that we've done the job
0: yeah and there's always more people to help yeah so yeah absolutely well, that sounds really rewarding, and like congratulations, guys, because I know it is an amazing feeling to actually help someone get where they want to go, and you know it's it's great for them, but it's also good for the soul. Um, what do you find the most challenging thing about being a psychosocial recovery coach? The most challenging thing
2: about being a recovery coach is knowing exactly what the client needs and having to not say it because you can tell a person something but that doesn't make them do it you have to lead a person you have to show them uh lead by example and help them to to, to, to make that decision for themselves um yeah it's the hardest thing to see someone falling apart and know exactly what you could do to fix it but knowing that just telling them what to do won't have any effect
3: yeah, it's like that saying, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. It's sort of the same situation. You you know what they need, um, and it's patience as well. I suppose you have to have so much patience for the job. Mm. I find that challenging at times. Um, same thing as Ben. We're both sort of the people that when we see friends, family, clients struggling, we just we want to help so badly, and it's like we want. To But we know that there's many cases where we just have to take a step back and let them do it at their own pace. And it's also knowing their abilities and what they're capable of and not pushing them too hard. Um, That's where we struggle a little bit as well. It's like, Hmm. you know what they're capable of, but you've also got to say, okay, you've got to just slow it down a little bit because you know that they can achieve this, but you've got to help them see that for themselves and not push too hard.
2: So you often find that um, with with support workers and stuff, a lot of people, it's supposed to be capacity building. It's supposed to be what we do with you. But a lot of the time, it's we do for you. Um, I really try not to we do for you ever. It's always supposed to be I'm assisting them um, and and building that capacity. And sometimes that can be hard and frustrating because you can see that the person's going to fall and you know that there's nothing you can do but to step back and, and let them... Yeah. Let them make that mistake and um, and help pick them back up. Yeah,
3: A good example, um, we had a client the other weekend who, um, you know, we, we obviously we don't really work weekends. And when we say we're not working, Ben and I always make a joke that we're not working because as a recovery coach, if there's crisis at any time, we're always on call basically. <laughs> yeah, we um, always
2: have somebody yeah. planning a phone so that if someone goes into crisis, we can enact a crisis plan. Yeah. It's something that we do with all of our clients. We have a properly written out crisis plan that involves what they do and don't want on, who can be shared with, who can't be shared with, um, who do I contact in in that kind of situation and what hospitals they can and don't want to go to, what medications they take, that kind of
3: thing. Yeah, so we had a client wanting something done and he sort of sent us. A few um, emails and messages and said, Oh, well, because you didn't do this in this, I had to do this myself, I had to do that, and da, da da And then Ben was like, Well, did you achieve it? And did they get done? He was like, Yeah. And he's like, Well, there you go, I've done my job because <laughs> I purposely took a step back. So I knew you were ready and prepared to be able to do those yeah. things yourself. Yeah. And you've just proven to yourself that you got it done. It didn't and it all me. was fine. Yeah.
2: It didn't need me. Yeah. And I knew that it didn't need yeah. me. And sometimes that's literally, you have to step back. And um, even sometimes as a recovery coach, you even get the negative feedback from clients from that, and then you have to sit down with them after they've made this achievement and go, hey, and I, it. I was not doing my job intentionally, right? Yeah. I'm like literally not doing this for you going here because I wanted you to do it for yourself. I wanted you to see yeah. if you could take that step forward.
3: Yeah. And then once you've explained it and they understand and they're like, oh, wow, I actually did do it. And then
1: you see the pride in them just come alive. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. It, it's funny that, that Paul asked you what the biggest challenge was and you ended up telling us again how much you <laughs> love it and how it is actually yeah. really joyful and how, you know, rewarding it is, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, uh, it's great. I think capacity building is just so challenging. So from, you know, many roles in my life, being an early childhood teacher and, you know, helping children learn to read and not reading the sentence for them, you know, so hard, um, not correcting them, letting them take a while to get there. And then as, as a mum, you know, I have a 12 year old who's just started, I have four kids, but my oldest has just started high school. And, you know, he's catching the bus by himself for the first time. And, he, you know, uh, got his first paid job and all of those things is like, you know, you've got your heart in your mouth, I think is the saying the whole time, like, Oh you know, I could just drive him and I could just do this for him and I could just give him the money but I really want him and he really wants to do these things himself also of course and I really want him to but it's you know that that nervousness of it just be safer mm. if I did it for him right? Yeah. It's easier for me, faster. Yeah. I even think I've I've got a 2-year-old on the other side of the spectrum and you know she she has to do everything herself and so getting dressed in the morning can take Forty minutes because she has to choose the right outfits, and she has to, and she put it on ten times, back to front, inside out, cute. But she has to do it herself. She won't be told. Well, my boys would let me dress them, but she won't be won't be told. And so the same thing that that patience, and I'm the least patient person in the world. So I think you know, hearing those stories, and I can think of friends who have had you know crisis in their life, and I've just wanted to scoop them up and put them in a bubble and make it safe for them. And I think what you do is something that I couldn't do you know I'm I'm happy to build capacity about how to get through an audit and build capacity around how to update your documents yourself but when it comes to like life decisions and you know when you say letting them fall potentially that's dangerous right there's a lot of risk there
0: you know yep.
1: and in a risk Definitely. world it's quite hard to navigate how you know for me to think I, I don't think that that is the job for me I'm I'm happy to say that I'm not the right person for that job but I mean to you because I think it takes a really special person to be able to be that patient and that kind and that empathetic as well and to think you really are putting the person first yeah. um, and that is the really challenging thing because this you know we also we as humans we're also always egocentric it's always you know so when I'm hurrying my child out the door it's because I am in a hurry not because it's you know it's not the best thing for her to put her shoes on I'm putting them on because it's easier and faster and so I think you know, it would be easier and faster for you to do a lot of these things for your participants and, and to tick those boxes and who would really know if they achieved that outcome or not? Nobody would know if you did it None. or if you did it. But mm. it's really about that, um, you know, it's really ethically aligned with, well, I would know and the participant would know and they wouldn't be able to actually gain those 100%. skills and they wouldn't be improving their lives. Um that's, you know, amazing. Sorry for my rant. I know I went off on a rant. No, no,
2: no, okay, thank great. you. You said some nice things. So, I mean, I, like I said, we, we try to use like measured outcomes as well, like the outcome stuff, mental health and recovery. Um, it's a great tool. And, yeah, I think it's important that you're using trial and tested measures both in your therapy, therapeutic practice but also how you're measuring what's happening with your clients and be consistent. Otherwise, you'll have no idea whether or not you or another, because even measuring just yourself you're actually also measuring all the therapists and what they're doing as well so ah. you're getting this big picture of like how everyone's helping the client
1: yeah and yeah. i mean evidence-based practice is so big in lots of areas of the NDAs but hearing that there's no qualification in this space and it's mostly done by support workers um you know that's that's of concern because how much evidence-based practice can a support worker know i taught the cert three in individual support for a few years and um Uh, yeah look I understand what a support worker is trained and it's certainly not about evidence-based practice around you know behaviors or complex behaviors or psychosocial disabilities you know it's um, yeah so it's it's interesting to hear and I wonder if that will be an improvement in the future I feel like everything in the NJS starts out so loose and fast as it's forming and then eventually yeah. we get to the space where there's you know requirements in place and standards in place and i guess it's just the teething issues and the immaturity of the scheme i suppose um but you know maybe with this review and the, their formalization of these navigator roles or whatever it's going to look like maybe there'll be further qualification requirements as part of that
2: it's definitely a hope
1: yeah i hope so yeah yeah yeah, yeah. 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 um yeah so my my last question for you today is: What would be the the best piece of advice that you have for someone who's thinking about becoming a recovery coach, um, and for a participant who's looking to select a recovery coach? How you know? How do you get started? I suppose, and and the tips around navigating that, and how do you know who's any good?
3: Right, oh,
2: gosh, you just go to our website. It's www. <laughs> No, really, um, I guess, yeah, The knowing the best recovery coach or finding a recovery coach for you, it's about rapport. So as well as it is qualification and understanding. So when you're looking for a recovery coach, you want to find someone that you gel with. So uh, signing up with someone through emails, not, not the best plan. You probably want to meet with a few psychosocial recovery coaches and get that feel for them and make sure that they, they fit with you, but then also make sure that they've actually had um, experience working with mental health clients um, two to four years preferably or more, um, and that they have some qualifications in mental health or risk or suicide um, just to know that they're going to have your back. Yeah. That um, Yeah, that relationship is a, it's a strong relationship, so you really have to make sure that you gel with the person. Um, otherwise, you're already fighting an uphill battle. Yeah.
3: See, Ben and I are also very much like vibe people. So we sort of, we encourage our participants, if you're not feeling us, we're not going to take it personally. Like if you're not vibing with us, if we're not your cup of tea and you can't open up to us like you need to, then yeah. we're more than happy to recommend you to others or find someone else. Like you don't have to gel with us. We just want you to get the help that you need. Um. So, yeah, it's the same thing when you're finding a psychologist or an OT even, you know, if you if you don't have trust in the person or if you don't feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable around a person, then they're not probably suited
1: to you.
2: Yeah. Yeah, brilliant. There was another part to that question. What was it? Uh, uh,
1: It is. um, What advice would you give to someone wanting to become a recovery coach?
2: Right. So if you want to become a recovery coach, um, either start with a Cert 4 in mental health, um, and then try do some work experience with uh, places like lifeline um, and other crisis intervention services like beyond blue um, i would also recommend because if you're working in the disability sector that you have experience as coordination i'll say it, with coordination and support working i mean i've done support work myself i've been been in the been in the trenches as it's called sometimes i've um, i've experienced a lot of things and like understanding from the ground up can really help to build a better picture of how everything works in the services. Um, yeah, get speak to therapists, try and understand their perspective. Mm. Um, do a short course on occupational therapy, do a short course on speech therapy, try to understand where all the different therapies come in and how it all works together so that you can provide the best holistic service to the, to the client.
0: Yeah, it I think grabbing like information it. from a lot of different places is really key because then you can, you've got those different perspectives. As you mentioned, like looking at what an, what an OT does and a physio does, even yeah. in a support work base, it gives you a well-rounded look so that you can actually develop that plan. Hey, we're going to do this over this period of time and we should start to see certain results happen. So that's that's a brilliant way to look at it. Sorry, Tanya. Yeah.
2: And you should know then from that personal experience when results aren't happening and when to question and who to question. Yeah. Brilliant.
1: I was just going to say that I I think it also needs like a, it sounds like it also needs someone with a level of maturity um, that, you know, might not be the role for someone who's 18 and, and fresh out of school that actually there's a level of maturity and just worldliness maybe and not that you know 18 year olds kind of had experience i'm sure there's lots that do but you know i i know that um there's just things that you get as you get older with your life experience as you've been in more situations that just Mm. lets you be able to create that rapport and have that level of patience and empathy um and Mm. get letting go of that ego a little bit to be able to serve somebody um it, it sounds like it's incredibly uh Uh, deep work as well you talked about being vulnerable but also you've talked about you know suicide and risk so they're things that you know are are really large heavy concepts for someone yeah definitely
2: and I mean like uh, I encourage anyone that's working with Roth um, um, either as a contractor or as an employee that we all have supervision and we all have our team meetings where we come together and discuss things and unwind and unpack issues with our clients just in case anything's affecting us because we have to make sure that us as recovery coaches are, um, I guess, separating our personal issues and um, biases from our clients and making sure that we're providing a service for them based on their needs as opposed to what our prerogatives are. Um, And, you know, you you do experience some pretty stressful deep things. um, And like you say, in relation to risk for the NDIS, it's a big word. um, And you want to make sure that everything's documented correctly and that with whatever therapy or supports you're providing, you've spoken and communicated with the right therapist or uh, provider before implementing anything. So, there's no point just willy nilly doing a sleep schedule unless you've spoken with an OT about it. There's no point um, taking the person out and doing exposure therapy unless the psychologist is working on them with that. There's no point doing, um, uh, complex um, tra- trauma therapy or attention therapy if they're doing a completely different version of therapy for, for the uh, post-traumatic stress. It, yeah, you need to have the big picture.
3: I want to speak a bit more on that as well because when Ben said, you know, you know, do short courses in maybe occupational therapy and stuff, it's not so that you can replace the occupational therapist. I think mm. that's also where recovery coaches are very misunderstood as well is we're not here to replace anybody. We're here to work alongside um, we don't want to replace like, your OT. We don't want to replace your speech therapist. We just want to be able to take whatever they've implemented and help you put those practices in your home because they can't come home with you. That they, they are where they are. They can't come home and make sure that you're doing those tasks on a daily, on a fortnightly or whatever it is. Um, so we're not, by no means wanting to replace anybody. We want to work alongside. And I think that's a big thing for me and a challenge, I suppose, with the whole NDIS in general is that I really feel like there's so much miscommunication amongst providers. Like we all need, we're all there and our ultimate goal is the participant in the end and their and their journey and helping them live a better, more fulfilled life. We really all need to be linked in better and communicating better. Um, I find that that's one of the challenging things for me is that I just feel like we don't, yeah. We don't communicate enough and we're not all on the same team. And ultimately, we are their dream team. We're helping them as a team achieve their goals. So we all need to be able to support team. each other and be on the same yeah. page. Yeah.
2: I think there is a little bit of um, and, um, our providers that will find um, a good or proactive recovery coach to be intrusive. It mm-hmm. can be perceived sometimes so because we're asking questions and holding them accountable. Um and this, I guess that's the same in normal coordination as well. You should be asking those questions and holding the providers accountable to ensure that they've actually done the therapy reports and the therapy reports make sense um and they're not asking for ridiculous funding um that for for services that they don't need yeah. and yeah yeah and and often that can be perceived negatively
0: yeah, brilliant I think there's there's so much uh nuanced in there that I think a lot of people miss, and i 'll be honest, I learned uh, quite a lot more about, uh, recovery coaching today. So thank you guys. Um, a couple of things that I got out of that, which, um, I think was really important was that, you know, it's, it's looking at that idea of that really recovery focus. I know it's in the name, but we, we lose words sometimes is that the idea is, as you mentioned, to get yourself out of a job, right. So to, to get someone to the point where they don't need that process anymore. Um, very much outcomes based, but also you're really working alongside therapists, providers, so that you're, you're you're helping everything along the way. I guess it helps a lot of those services become a lot more coherent for participants as well. Um, it helps join them all together. Um, could you give us yeah. give us an idea? Of, could you give us an idea of how people can get in touch with you in regards to recovery coaching or learning more about what you do?
2: Sure, yeah, you can go to our website, um, that's at Um There's a lot of information on there about me and um, Robin and our organisation and how we do our work and recovery coaching. Um, and I would say have it, just honestly, just have a Google online and read up all the different versions of what people have said psychosocial is what recovery is, and you'll see that there's just so many different examples, so many different providers providing the same service, and um, and you'll see that there's yeah that, that it's not consistent across them. So you've got to find the organisation, the business that's going to gel
0: with you. But come on, have a look at ours and see what you think. Brilliant, that's awesome. Thank you so much, guys. That's all we've got time for today on the podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening but thank you so much, Ben and Robin for being here today. We really appreciate it and for your insight into you know recovery coaching as a whole, but how it's operating within the industry, what's working, what's not. Um, but thank you so much for I hope clearing up for our listeners exactly what should be happening and and how it all fits into the scheme of participants plan. Awesome. Thanks for having us.
3: Thank you. It was very nice having a chat. And, yeah, we, we just we, we we want to spread the word and get it out there a bit more. And, yeah, this was a great opportunity to do that. So hopefully people understand a little bit more and there's not so much of, like, a uh, a stigma around recovery coaching
1: now. Yeah. Perfect. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. It was uh, really great to chat. And we look forward to hearing about what happens next at Ross.
3: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Profitable NDIS Provider Podcast with Tanya Gomez and Paul Bryan. We hope you found today's episode informative and valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe, leave us a rating and share it with others who could benefit from our insights. Until next time, keep thriving.